1992 saw the arrival of muscle-bound lycra-wearing gladiators to our TV screens. And if you were like me, it was must-see Saturday night primetime viewing to watch ordinary people swing, climb and get battered about to be crowned the champion contender. Joining me today is everyone's favourite gladiator, Jet, who hung up her lycra to become a psychotherapist. Please welcome, to talk about her life after that thing she did, Diane Udell. Diane, hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> you look very well. You look exactly the same as you you were when I remember when I first saw you when I was 12 years old on TV. You look exactly the same. <laughs> Shame. Now you're making me feel my 50 years. But um, thank you so much. Yes, I, I do try my best and I haven't got it. I haven't always got it right. But, you know, yes, it is nearly 30 years since you saw me as a 12 year old. <laughs> So I have to start by saying that my favourite fact I discovered about you when I was doing my research, which I hope is true, is that you starred opposite Daniel Craig on stage when you were both in the National Youth Theatre. I did. I wasn't the. St- I wasn't a star. I was a. We did the. Um, we did a show called Night Shriek, and it was at the Shaw Theatre in London. I just moved down to London, not long turned sixteen, to do a season with the National Youth Theatre, and um, it was a musical by a lady called Trisha Ward, who's from the northeast up here, and Ed Wilson, who was the then director brought a handful of us down from the original musical to star in the London version. And Daniel was in my group and he played a lead role. Uh, I think it was uh, Lord Macduff. Um, and he it was, yeah, it was based on Macbeth, basically. And I played like a ghoulie spirit thing with lots of dancing because I just, I was due to start at London Contemporary to train as a dancer choreographer. So yeah. And he was, he was really enigmatic. He was very quiet and incredibly sort of white from head to foot. I don't know what I mean by that, but under stage lights with his white blonde hair, very pale skin and these blue, blue eyes. It was quite kind of a presence and he held his, he was, he was really good even then, I have to say. Hello, Dan, if you're listening. <laughs> it was that kind of weird to see him when he became James Bond to be like, oh my God, I was on stage with him once. Yeah, I know that I dined out on that for, and still do quite a bit. You know, I worked with Dan. (laughs) (laughs) He's lovely. He really is. Yes. And like most actors, they tend to be incredibly private and very serious about what they Mm. do. But what a great run he's had. And I love the way he's handled his bond. And I'll do another one. Oh, come on. I'll do another one. And why not? I think he's, for me, he's my favourite bond, of course. (laughs) (laughs) No bias there. I'm sure when uh, when Gladiator started, he was probably watching on a Saturday night TV saying, I remember her. I I was on stage with her as well. Oh, I wish. I know. As if. (laughs) Speaking of your alter ego with Jet, as we just mentioned, let's kick things off and head straight into the nostalgia zone. I used to watch American Gladiators when it was on TV at like two o'clock in the morning. You're a aficionado. Um, Get you. I I had to set the video to record it because... It was it was on so late. Uh, so I was really excited when there was a UK version announced. Had you watched the US version to get an idea of what you were letting yourself in for? Um, yes, is the answer. Only by fluke. Uh, my lovely partner back then, Carlos, he'd sort of said to me, have you seen this? Time? Two o'clock in the morning, wasn't it? Friday evenings, uh, going into the early hours of Saturday. So I used to teach Saturday mornings. So I would very rarely be up. But I sort of thought, oh, oh God, what's that? Then, of course, when I got the call to go up to LWT and um, take a look at the show, they played some VT back then of the American show. So inadvertently, yes, I had. Did you like the American show? 
because obviously I, I, it, was, it was the forerunner to all of us. Yeah, I loved it. I think it was um, again by fluke that my brother had discovered it because he was—he's four years older than uh-huh. me, and I think he—he just been up late, and so he watched it, and then he thought that we would all like it, so he recorded it, oh. and then the next day he was like, "Watch this program. It was called American Gladiators," <laughs> and then we like recorded it every week, and we always watched it. Yeah. So yeah, I was—I was like a really big, big fan, but I mean, I didn't realize how young you were when you did the show, and I guess because. Because I say I was twelve at the time when it started, and when you're a kid, like everyone else that isn't a kid, just seems like they're old. <laughs> you know, just true. they're just it's grown true. up. They're adults. Yeah. But you were only twenty two when you did it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd been I'd moved to London at sixteen, National Youth Theatre, and then I was with the National Youth Dance Company the following season. Uh, so it was a very busy couple of years. But I'd, I'd got a place at London Contemporary Dance School, which is a, a huge international uh, place to train. I, I, I wanted to be a choreographer. I mean, I didn't want to dance or perform or be a front person at all. And I'm still much more comfortable behind the scenes to this day. But um, I moved to London, and yeah, I just think. All of the breaks that went on from there were because other directors said, oh, you've got a strong body. Oh, you can move really well. You take direction really well. Will you play this part? Will you do that part? So Gladys kind of was just part of another job that came in for me, really. I had no idea, though, until one of the producers tapped me on the show and said, this could be very big. It's going to be primetime Saturday night, mainstream TV. And we all sort of just looked at each other. I was like... Yeah, and uh, but nothing prepared you really for that level of what is now primetime Saturday night stuff. It was huge, yeah. It's odd. <laughs> what was the casting process like? Well, they'd put their feelers out. Um, I think they'd looked at athletes, but of course, for insurance purposes, most athletes, if they're ongoing during their career, there's no way they'd want to take a risk on a show like Glad's. And that became part of its demise, to be honest, because so many really good athletes wouldn't want to touch gladiators because the injury injury rates were so high, particularly as the years went by and the contenders got harder and stronger and the events were difficult. So injuries really were the bane of the show because it was a really dangerous place to work. But great, great fun. Car crash TV, which is what people love. But, you know, when it's a joint set in your body, that's going to take at least six months to hit an impossible surgery. It's not the best place to work. But, you know, it, it was part of it. And yeah, just nothing quite prepared me for it, though. And the whole machine that got running behind it with all the marketing and everything. And I'm really proud of LWT that I haven't done it, though, because I think it was the first one really of its type. When you were, I guess, when you were being being cast or, or auditioned, as it were, did they kind of like wheel out any of the events for you to try to see if you'd be good at it? Like, have, have you joust <laughs> or climb a wall or any of that kind of stuff? What they did do is they sent us to Woolwich Barracks to do gym tests, which I was really happy with. So I was still really fit. I'd been a gymnast as a child, maintained my fitness all the way through teaching dance. And so gym tests were like a run in the park, literally. And then they took us outside to do an army assault course, which I loved. <laughs> Uh, and they called me Jet because I was really quick. I, I've, I've since found out because I thought, is it because I've got dark hair? It's not so dark now. Uh, but was it because of all that? And then Nigel, our, our boss, big boss. I was Nasty Nigel from, from Popstars, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, that's right. And he, with John K. Cooper, in the early 1990s, was one of the ones who went out to America, looked at the format over there and thought... 
would it work on British TV? So he and John Kay brought it back to these shores and with LWT, they put it together. And he called me Jess, he said, because I was really quick. I wasn't just, he's now confirmed it's because I was so quick at all the tests. So I was very, very happy with that. Um, and it was, it was grueling, but then it ought to be. And I think they really struggled to find girls of a certain height because um, I'm one of the smaller girls alongside Lightning, but they wanted the girls to be Amazonianly tall, and I'm five six, um, and they wanted them a minimum five foot eight. So I think I put little sort of stays in my trainers to make me that little inch taller to be nearer. But at the end of the day, I think they were scraping the bottom of the barrel anyway, so they had to have me because I was the only one who could do it originally. Actually, Gabby Yorath, who's now Gabby Logan, she was also very good in the tryout. But she'd just been snapped up by Sky to be doing more presenting ah. on sport. So she didn't come with us in the end. But I wonder, had her route taken that, you know, path, what gladiator she'd have been called. <laughs> yeah, but that's interesting that she was she was auditioning with you as well. I, I noticed that four out of the six male gladiators were called Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I imagine that could cause some confusion. It's like Mike and everyone turns to look at you. <laughs> That's right. So Nigel set a rule and he did this not because all the boys were called Mike, but then he did tongue in cheek say, yeah, it did make it easier. If you're on the shop floor or even in the hotel, you had to be caught by your gladiator name. Um, and he, I think he wanted the bit of the zeitgeisty of us being these otherworldly beings. Uh, no one's called Mike or Diane, you know, <laughs> it's Jet and it's, it's Hunter and it's Rhino and it's all these things. I'm like... Uh, so I think that was his intention, but he was never going to get away with it. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the gladiator personas. Because, of course, we had Wolf, who was you know, kind of portrayed as the, the mean character, and Cobra was the joker, and yeah. you were kind of like the nice, smiley face of the gladiators. Were you given <laughs> scope to create these personas, or were they created for you? Not at all. I think, I think with the exception of Mike Van Wyk, I was calling him Wick. And he said, no, die, it's Wyke, you know it is. It's a sort of Dutch um, inheritance, I think, uh, from back then. Mike van Wyk, who was our wolf. Um, apart from him, I think we were all kind of let, for the original cast, let to just evolve with who we were. Because by the time Sky took over many years later, they were then kind of trying to sculpt each of the gladiators into a kind of a, a almost like a, a WWF wrestling type character, which I don't think unless it's authentic translates because the camera never lies. You either be what you are, or if you're a very good actor, do try and be something you're not. Because Mike Van Wyk Wolf, is in fact a really soft, lovable guy. And he said, I don't want to be the baddie. I want to be the lover. I want to be like, you know, seen as one of the sexy, gorgeous guys. I said, well, you look great. I said, but a baddie, we all love a good baddie, Mike. <laughs> so he went on to be so popular. And Jet, um, no, I just, I would hair flick and, and sort of gush to the camera slightly amidst mucho moves, like lifting my leg and doing sort of Y stands, handstands, free cartwheels, triple pirouettes, you name it, because when the camera's on you, you'll be facing Jet. It, I really hated standing still and posing because I'm not a stand still poser girl. I, I move, I'm functional. Um, and also if you stand still, you can see the wobbly bits more, even more. So, and those two <laughs> bits of lycra didn't cover very much. Um, so yeah, I, I kept moving and did the aerial uh, cartwheel because often I've got hand guards on so I couldn't do flick flacks. So I invented lots of moves for my signature, which is why the hair flick came in too. <laughs> oh, actually no, that because when we took our helmets off after, after 
after some of the events and it'll recast straight there with the mic to interviewers. You've got makeup kind of all the way up your face and your hair stuck across your face because of your sweating. So I would tip my head over, then flick my hair back just to get my hair off my face because I've got these gloves on. You can't do anything with them. You can't, you can't like smarten up or get your hair off your face. Oh, Ulrika, can you just pull that hair out of my mouth, please? So that's where the hair flick came from as well. It was all functional. <laughs> Promise. <laughs> I, mean, I was surprised to learn that you were actually pretty shy. I mean, you, you know, you've, you've yeah. just trying to touch that you, you didn't really, you know, was ever your intention to kind of be at the forefront of the stage. No. And you also had a, an eating disorder for five years up until you were 19. Um, mm. So to go from obscurity to suddenly being this sex symbol overnight yeah. and watched by 12 million people, you know, how, mm. how did you cope with that? Do you know what? It was a huge, huge plush. I mean, as a psychotherapist, I'm very much of you can't change what's outside of you, but you very much can start to change how you look at the world from inside, you know. Um, and at the time, it, it gave me a chance. I'd been bulimic for four years from 14 to 19 um, when the symptoms had manifest. I'd always had thoughts because I've been a gymnast. I grew very tall, very young. And all my compatriots at the time were tiny junior champion gymnasts. But I'd grown to the height of a senior, five foot six by the age of 13, which which takes you out of sort of, but it does, it, all it did for me was meant that throwing the, the, the higher tariff, more dangerous moves was becoming more difficult because there's more, a longer body, longer lever length to throw around. And I started developing as well. And I had a bit of a hang up of like, I want to remain kind of, you know, boy looking for as long as possible because my career as a gymnast at risk. And I had that real kind of alpha mentality as a young child because I was an elite athlete and that's what happens. But for me at the time, turning into a woman with boobies uh, and bottom, um, and then somebody behind me on a tumble run one day saying, oh, die, you're getting a beautiful figure. I could have died. I just thought, what? A figure? That's what women have. And, you know, I was, I was really I was really driven, as you can tell, Jen. And um, not at all like most girls go, oh, I want to have my bra. I want to grow up. And I'm like, no, it's the horrible worst thing that could happen to me. And so that's why. So from 14 to 19, I really wrestled with the whole kind of becoming what visibly, in the end, as Jet, was a very feminized, very glamorous. Now I look back and think, gosh, so actually Glad's kind of really helped me. The external helped me kind of go, well, actually having a bit more booby and body um, um, and it not wobbling around too much and me feeling okay about it. And it's all right to have lumps and bumps in all the wrong and the right places because you've got to remember the early 1990s, we'd come out of the 1980s where heroin chic, like looking like a coat hanger with like a skeletal frame had become very normalized from the world of fashion into mainstream for women to think, oh gosh, you know, you've got to not have a figure to be beautiful. Well, I thought, you know, to hell with it. Here we are, functional athletes with lumps and bumps and all the wrong and right, loads of muscle. I've got fantastic lots of natural muscle, which now in my mid-years is great because metabolically it means I'm 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 able to keep the weight off lots of mid midlife. There's loads of stuff about hormones, so I could go on forever. But anyway, yeah, I'm I'm really fortunate. I was born with a really high propensity to muscle mass. And um, and that's in my DNA. Not every woman gets that. So I Glad's allowed me to kind of go, wait a minute. This I am I'm doing Jet, I'm being Jet. I've part of this amazing show. 
because of who I am, because of how God made me, this is a big plus in my life. So I had the wonderful opportunity to do a massive reframe uh, and pull away from a period of, of definitely a mental health issue with bulimia, um, which pervaded my life for quite a few years. I've not talked about that in ages. And now it feels like really bizarre that I ever was that way. I'm like, wow, I can barely remember it. But I remember looking in the mirror and really really being very torturous about my own body, body dysmorphia, very about my own body image. Because of course, when, when you train as a dancer, you're staring in the mirror for hours a day, yeah. every day. But I love the way the world is now. We're so much more inclusive of all shapes, sizes, colours, ages, and it's great. Uh, but in my day, it was very, it was very elitist. And um, I fit the mold but the mold that I did fit became my 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 USP and what you know yeah I'm, I'm really grateful really can see it all now and think wow I'm so fortunate mm. and and I love the body I've been given because it works and I'm very fortunate to maintain that too <laughs> so it kind of feel weird that you were like on posters in lots of teenage boys bedrooms <laughs> Oh, I would cringe because obviously coming from a background of really not liking my body, feeling really self-conscious and like everything wasn't right to suddenly being loved in that way. Yeah. Even now I'm a bit like, oh, it's freaky. But, you know, people, people, I know a lot more about how people work. So becoming famous really got me interested in more psychotherapeutics. I've always been interested in the mind as a child. And then couple that with the journey of becoming a famous person and what we do is, is, is how we project. We project it our idea of people onto people immediately uh, so we make up you might see what you see in a thin slice but then you make up the rest until you fully get to know the person and what we make up the projection onto that person is usually quite delicious because you're wanting that person to be all these wonderful things so that's what happened to me during the jet years is that people didn't know me from adam they could get a thin slice of me and then project onto me a whole set of ideas which was so positive and so full of love and, and i'm happy to say i kind of do match a lot of in self-reflection <laughs> I am a decent person and I do generally I'm very grateful I've got a lot of grace in my heart and yeah it was it wasn't too far away from what I know I am so I'm really grateful to this day um with with all of this and even now if I look at pictures I'm going through stuff now as I'm, I'm helping sort through things uh where I'm staying I'm finding box loads of pictures from that era thinking wow 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 and double wow how fortunate was I to be an early 20 something on one of the industry's biggest shows and fit and healthy and I'm so grateful so so grateful for all of those opportunities yeah magical the show wasn't without controversy mm. and I know that Cobra has, has since revealed that he was either drunk or hungover when he was filming oh bless him <laughs> I never would have known and uh, <laughs> and Shadow was dismissed after testing positive for steroids but do you think if social media existed back then and the press was how it is now do you think people would have been forced to be on their best behaviour because there would have been yeah. this like extra layer of scrutiny yes absolutely absolutely I mean I I knew Mickey Cobra another Mike uh, was one of the funniest people still to this day he can he can make me cry with laughter he's just a, he's a mimic he's he's got lovely take on the world he's 
just beautifully put together. He was funny then. I had no idea that obviously it was kind of galvanized and possibly accentuated by if he had been drinking. I don't know. Um, I, I didn't hang out too much with him, I must admit, but I would never have known. Um, yeah, because you said, oh, yeah, die a lot of the time. But I'm thinking, if I think back, he could have thrown a lot of the, the little kind of martial arts stunts and things. How can you do that if you're inebriated? I'm not sure, but he certainly did. And he was a great gladiator. Uh, but today, yeah, none of that would stand up. I think it would be completely different. One of the things the press office did say to us at the time, a lovely lady called Zoe McIntyre, who I know is still out there. Hello, Zoe, if you ever listen. She said, you know, if you've got any skeletons in your closet, any of you, get them out now. So anything like me, having been bulimic as a teenager, um, any of the guys who'd been on, they call it gear, steroids, as bodybuilders, because it's not illegal back then still isn't mm. bodybuilding's not my background but you know you've got to come out about it and certainly come off come away from the the steroids and to be honest for the boys it was a real it's like me with a reframe of having a body that's lumpy and bumpy because it's muscular um that's how I used to view it now I'm just happy it it works <laughs> you know but back then for the boys it was a great opportunity for them to actually become leaner more powerful with greater power to weight ratio because a lot of the gladiatorial events didn't loan themselves to being bulky and not very functional as athletes. Um, I think possibly only dual, which is the pugilistic one where they stand and bat 10, 10 bells out of each other, uh, would have been the only one where it's sort of size and mass. But even then, you just got to be so strong and lean and capable in that arena. So for the boys, it was a big plus in the end that they came away from whatever they had done, if they had been doing it, um, before the show. So yeah, and it would be so different today i think people are more accountable they have to be because someone will be across it <laughs> good question yeah there's always someone with a smartphone <laughs> that's right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you left the series i think you did four four series and mm. then you left in 1996 after yeah. getting injured that's um right. and you almost you almost broke your neck i think didn't you but i, yeah. I presume you've had lots of injuries doing the show but with this one did you immediately know something was wrong yeah when I landed it was I was like four and a half years I feel like a child I'm seven and a half <laughs> it was four and a half so that the half was the live events at Wembley so every year we would do a live event which would be filmed just for um to just kind of see who the contenders coming through would work well on camera and then we take them on to film the actual series in Birmingham uh, so this live event at Wembley in 1996 I was on period and that day I did feel not very, you know, when you're just not with it and you feel like you sat at the end of a tunnel and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you feel distant and not very tuned in. And I can't think back and think, gosh, does feel like I'm a poorly or am I just tired? But it was very unusual for me to feel that way. And I remember that morning just not feeling great. And John Anderson had said, the, the ref, wonderful John, had said to Kim and I, Lightning, you two, I want to see double tackles all the way from the top of the pyramid on every, on every tackle for this whole minute on this event. And my strategy was to what I call bundle the contender off 
at least twice to pre-exhaust them. So by the time we do do a double tackle down the pyramid, I'm more in control of the fall So because they're, they're exhausted. Uh, but of course, you can't control velocity and angle at which you hit a crash mat on falls easily. You've got to really know what you're doing. So I had a little strategy which would afford that. But on this one event, on this one time, I'd spun the girl off. She was slightly bigger and heavier than me as well. So I knew I had my work cut out and she was fit. So she then raced me and I thought on the second one, I'll do the double tackle. I'll do what John says, no problem. And I got some air. So I pushed us both off the pyramid and I'm now somersaulting through the air. And I landed upside down with my neck to one side and I saw my bottom here in front of my head, which is like an Olga Corbett hyperextended move she used to do on the beam when she became famous years and years ago. And I heard a very loud snap and it came from the cervical spine, the neck. And I thought, oh God, that's my neck. And as I lay there on the crash mat, I can't remember much more, but I remember being able to move my legs and thinking, I haven't broken my neck. I I can move. I remember the ambulance then. um, And I remember being able to wiggle my fingers. So I remember thinking, I've not broke my neck. I'm fine. And that was my biggest fear. So what I had done is compressed some vertebrae in the cervical. You know, I was very lucky, really lucky. And it was after that, I thought I'd met my then husband, my then late husband, sorry, uh, former husband. And um, I did, I loved nothing more than walking mountains with him and my dog, my two boys, uh, Ben and George. And they made such a big quality of my life. I'd been working since I was 14. I was then 26 and thought, time to take a step back. This show's been brilliant. I'd rather leave while it's still very big and it's lovely. And thank you, thank you, gladiators. But not for me, because if I'm sat in a chair, and I'm sure many people in wheelchairs do amazing things, but I had the choice and I thought, I want to be able to still walk my mountains until I'm much older with my boys or anyone else these days. <laughs> and, um, and 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 enjoy that and have the choice. I, I My body's able and I thought, the spinal injuries at that point on the show, Jen, had started to get literally a little too close for comfort. And unfortunately, there were some really bad accidents. For light entertainment, no, no, thank you. Not for me. Not for me. So I left. Yeah. It's the Gladiator's 30th anniversary coming up next year. Surely something must be happening to market. <laughs> Yes. Oh, there there will be. We don't know yet. None of us do. Um, I'm I'm hoping. I was gonna say there's definitely something gonna go on. I'm hoping, ITV, uh, you do do something to celebrate our 30th. It would be like, you know, reaching your one of your big zero birthdays and turning up no one's remembered and there's not even a party. It's not just a big old, you know, a bloody party hat or a balloon anywhere in sight. And I, I want the balloons to be shaped like poodle sticks. <laughs> <laughs> um, it would be nice. Hint, hint, ITV. Yeah, there's been there's been talk, and and one of the guys we work with on the Glad Pods, the podcast that started uh, uh, over the last year or so, last last year, um, he's 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 an ITV producer, and I think he's probably got his heart set on being part of whatever process that may be. And if not, I know for a fact. Uh, there's another producer called we call him producer Paul, but he he was a, a young lad who I actually helped with his CV uh, in the days when websites we, we need a website. What's that? I gave him a reference to do the, the the Gladiator website, and since then he's he works for Disney now, and he's amazing. He's he's become a lovely friend as well. But he basically 
knows anything and everything about every glad across the globe. Proper super fan. <laughs> super fan and a lovely guy. And these two producers between them and the, all of us glads, I'm pretty sure if ITV doesn't do anything, we'll, we'd, we'd cuff something together. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it would be quite, but it, I'd like it to be something that would also honour the huge fan base that's still out there for the show. People that were so fond of the show, like yourself growing up. And, you know, it would be it would be amazing to do something quite what i'm not sure maybe a number of events i don't know like a comic con but with all the glads yeah gladiator gladiator con Con, there you go you heard it there first jen it's you you'll be doing it (laughs) okay so it's time now to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what i like to call the latter zone otherwise known as life after that thing i did after leaving Gladiators, I guess as Jet had become a significant part of of you and your identity, did you wonder if by giving it up, you might not be able to to leverage that persona anymore? Good question. Um, No. I mean, one, I was happy to literally walk away while my legs were working (laughs) Uh, because the injuries uh, were scary for me. Um, but I had started to be asked as a, as a popular member on the show to do a lot of presenting um, because I'd, I had a background in teaching fitness. So I had good knowledge on nutrition and fitness. Even back then, my bioscience and sports science was reasonable. Um, and it wasn't as great as our beautiful, wonderful sports scientists are out there now, but I could translate it well. I'm very good orator. I'm very good teacher. I'm good at drawing out the best from others. Um, so I was already doing that and I'd been doing that from quite an early age, um, uh, just because I could, and it was fun and usually with the sort of dance element to it, but it was lots of fitness with the background of it. So somebody heard me in an interview at the BBC and went, mm, she can talk, she's got a brain, she's female and she's really a fruit of the moment. Let's leap on her to become a presenter. So the next thing I'm training at the BBC at Broadcasting House to do broadcast, um, they're literally sort of quietly turning over scripts on a mic, uh, but hosting and covering for then Michaela Strachan on a, a programme she was doing on Five Live, where before it became Five Live, it was BBC Youth and Education, then it became Five Live as we know it now. And so from there, I just started doing more and more and more presenting, both on mic and on camera, and decided to either train as a journalist or do what I wanted to do from an early age, which was study the mind and become a psychotherapist. Both are the same. One's very public, one's very private. And I chose the latter because psychotherapy is something I'll do forevermore because people fascinate me. And um, like yourself, it's just a conversation, drawing out stories and listening and like, wow, that's interesting. What do you make of that? What do you think about that now? It's, yeah. So no, it didn't dry up at all. Uh, I wasn't afraid of that because I already had my heart set on just moving forwards and doing pretty much what I do now. We'll touch on the the psychotherapy in a second but um I just wanted to talk about that you you also hosted one of my favorite tv shows as a kid that I wanted to be on desperately which was finders keepers I knew you were gonna say that which was uh if no one's ever watched it it's basically the show where you got to ransack a house to win prizes. And uh, you know, as a kid, we always told to keep your room tidy. I thought this was just like the dream of being able to, to wreck a house. Um, but they always say never work with children or animals. That's right. <laughs> how, how, did you, how did you find that experience? Oh, you loved it. The amount of times so something would be dropped on my head or I'd get something in the way of some child rabidly 
scavenging through and wrecking a room because you literally could tear the rooms apart. And Neil and I, uh, Neil Buchanan and I, who were co-presenting, would have to get into the rooms with the kids. We would know where the stuff was. So we'd kind of be going hot, hot, cold, cold, hot, hot, cold, cold. It was great fun. I'm so glad to hear you enjoyed that. I <laughs> loved it. It was just licensed to be, you know, just absolutely reckless. <laughs> <laughs> it looked very fun. Did you ever do it in your own home? <laughs> oh, God, no. Uh, <laughs> I wish. I, was, I think it was always kind of like the natural mess that would just kind of accumulate. And then I was always told yeah. to, to tidy tidy my room um so if we we circle back to the psychotherapy so you went back to university Mm -hmm. and then trained to become a a psychotherapist Mm. which is quite a change to being a a gladiator on primetime Saturday (laughs) night telly um was Mm. that a, a difficult decision to go back to further education given what you'd done before no I was so looking forward to it because I because I'd started working so young, affording the time and the finances to go back to to, to education. And even then it was part time. I did adult an adult education route with Surrey University and then found the course I wanted to do my final practitioner. Uh, status with because you within psychotherapy there were so, so many different models and modalities even then you could choose from it was in its infancy because we're talking 20 years ago but now there's more so and I've, I've kept across as many as possible that I think for me are relevant within the therapeutic process that I found work or help people work in their lives um, mm. so I was around when certain models hadn't come to what they they are quite today uh, so I had to do a lot of research and I really enjoyed the process of going back and studying it suits me and I I desperately for the rest of my life would love to be continuing CPD but it is expensive now Um, um, and I enjoyed it very very much I lived in the southeast of England in Surrey and there was a lot of very good places to train there were long trainings not none of this two weekends you get a certificate or a diploma that you can do online these days it was a four-year pathway for me that I'm glad I did because it's intense you've got to look at yourself you've got to know what you're doing to be sat there alongside somebody's life that may be very very different to all your experiences so you've got to have the academic credentials um, study hard and know what it feels and means to be a good therapist and hold that space very proud of it You've since dedicated your life to helping people mm-hmm. through fitness and wellness yeah. and obviously you're, you're a working psychotherapist yeah. and you've also worked with young people who've had eating disorders as well. Do you find that they can relate to you more because of your experience with it? Absolutely. I, I still get people to this day coming to me because they, they, they recognise that at some point in my life I sat there in a similar place to them uh, where food had not become an easy part of 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 my life and so i think for them there's a an affinity i think having having had experiences with various things doesn't necessarily make you the best therapist for it in fact it can get in the way we have something called contamination um so you, you can be contaminate so if i was dealing with issues that maybe i have personally experienced the first thing i do with my supervisor is we look for efficacy and duty of care in terms of the clarity of a clean space i can work with somebody whose experience will be very different of what those, that symptomology is, if you know what I mean. So I'm, I'm always checking. to say So you don't bring anything from your experience into Absolutely. their experience, yeah? 
Absolutely. I think if, if, if it means to them, and I'll check it out with them, that I have had an experience, not their experience, but an experience, if it's of any benefit. And sometimes they say, well, yes, because I think sometimes you do when you when you're massively struggling with something, um, you you look at you can look at people and go, well, how can earth do you understand anything about what this is like? Because you've not been there. And that's a normal human place to go to when you're really struggling with something. So, yes, it can create more of an affinity. Uh, it doesn't necessarily qualify me any better, but it, it certainly can create what we call a deeper working alliance, uh, the foundation of how we work. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been able to mix the psychotherapy with TV as well. You were the resident yeah. psych on Big Brother's Bit on yes. the Side. But as a psychotherapist, does watching reality TV like Big Brother or Love Island, I mean, that must be mm. fascinating to watch. Love it. As a therapist, um, especially with the focus on duty of care now that there's, yep. you know, a lot of issues around that at the moment. It had to do a 360. There was a point in time where it could have been as reckless as it possibly was. And we know this, sadly, to, 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 to cost for family and friends of those who were exposed and possibly not looked after in the way that they could. But, you know, that is the draw with these things. It's the fascination of the human condition in extreme circumstances. Look at Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Um, we are fascinated by it because it, it could be you how would you behave in that situation this isn't some school trained actor star bringing a character to the camera and 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 really they're safe doing because it it's all acting this isn't for real but reality tv is real tv it's real and it, i think for us that's what makes it more compelling and authentic medium of tv has had to really tighten up uh, what it is doing with people's uh, psychology and mental health and I'm glad of that but it, there was a, a feral time when Big Brother had started and for the belly of it and I got to do the psyche bit you're right for a few of those years whereby it was a bit fed to the wolves um, and I found it fast I mean you could not today put a group of people in a closed environment with no access to the even in prison you allow visitors and TV and newspapers and the paper to write on but Big Brother <laughs> none of that so for people like me who love psychology and love in the field experiments you are watching a live experiment and I miss it I really do <laughs> because it was people are, why are you watching that stuff I'm like oh it's fascinating isn't it fascinating to you and they're like no it's trash I'm like oh it's not oh it really isn't look how that person's with that person and you know when I do research on that person that person's got that background that's why they're behaving that way to that person and people are like, oh and I said, well, that's what we do as psychologists. We're, put, we're putting together pieces of jigsaws and helping that person understand it. But on Big Brother, they didn't have their say. So it was it was really, yeah, I found it. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> We've been in some form of lockdown now for almost a year. Yeah. And it's really affected a lot of people in terms of their mental health. <laughs> I was just wondering, what, what have you been doing in terms of wellness and what can people do if they're struggling? Uh, first and foremost, routine. You have to form a routine based on what you know works for you. Um, I'm very fortunate where I have been in lockdown. I've been helping care for my beautiful, beautiful mum. She's priceless. Um, on her request to be here with her in the north of England, um, I and her village is surrounded by countryside. It's a short drive also to the North Yorkshire Moors, the, the, the Yorkshire Dales, and a beautiful uh, coastline, one of some of the nicest cliff coastline of the country other than the southwest uh, mm. for me, and of parts of Wales, of course, as well, and Scotland. Um, I get around. Um, and I'm a huge, 
huge outdoor exercise and walker lover. So, and I always have been. Uh, my gym is a mountain. My gym is the sea. My gym is outdoors. I don't care. It's just that. Or a dance studio. I, I would I would forsake that. Yeah, routine. So for me, getting into a routine very early on in lockdown, and it was a good routine, run first thing, and then do the same run pattern in reverse as a walk in the evening. And I still do that in the winter months and the darker months, still the same routine. And it just, I get the right amount of vital energy from outside and being active uh, and then getting on with the rest of the day in terms of planning, being there for others, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so routine, routine, routine is what you need in lockdown because a human psyche and a human body absolutely loves routine. Yeah, it's my one tip, one and only tip really. I know a lot of people kind of struggling with, you know, even if they do kind of have routine, it's, I guess, the loneliness issue, especially if they're single or on their own and it's just not the seeing people, not having social contact, mm. that, that whole kind of thing is really difficult. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. So I'm 51 coming up and um, I've been single for quite some time since my last relationship broke down and that was conscious. I thought, no, 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 right. I am decompressing. I'd had a lovely marriage prior to that, really beautiful relationship 20 years of you know being in adult relationships and doing them very well and I did it pretty horribly I got it wrong and and it's it's part of a book um and really quite horrific to be honest and I'm still here though and I've survived to tell the tale as many others have and some unfortunately haven't so I'm doing it from the right place and raising awareness with it which I'll come to at another point in time um, and I've been sort of not wanting to be in a close or an intimate relationship with anybody because of what happened. And you, if you knew why, you'd understand. But I have mm. actually thought this year, hmm, I may start dating um, because I've suddenly thought, why? I'm not going to be alone forever. I've got great friends. I love my friends. I can live with uh, being alongside people and in friendships, but maybe, maybe. Um, so it did bring me to think more about what is it like for those particularly teenagers, younger people who are desperate. I mean, your whole programming from your teens into your 20s to your early 30s is to couple up. It's absolute evolution to couple up and mate. I'm sorry, very basic science, but it is. Well, no matter what species you are, that's what you're, when you're in your height of your, uh, you know, primary productive years, it is the biggest drive. So I, I can only think for a moment how dis- soul destroying that could be for some. But again, with social media, yeah, there are ways you can start to connect. It's not real, but hopefully you can build enough of an awareness of what somebody else's landscape and the likes and not likes that you have or an affinity with somebody on social media before you do get the chance to maybe meet safely at a distance. I mean, one of my friends said to me a while ago, she said, oh, it's so lovely lockdown. She said, normally her relationship style would be jumping both feet very quickly. It's given her chance to kind of change her relationship style and try before buying is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and I think for anybody listening to this, make use of that. Don't make the mistakes I've certainly made <laughs> in the past. <laughs> try before you buy. <laughs> um, so it is have fun with it <laughs> it is the new year and the time when yeah. people resolve to make changes in their lives whether that's mm-hmm. getting fit or eating healthier or generally just take care of themselves a bit better can you give us any tips to help people stick at it and achieve their goals yeah d- routine again I'll go back to routine and don't forget once you set a routine it's not set in stone Uh, you know, keep wiggling it and, and, uh, you know, tweaking it as to what works with you. As you evolve as a more 
disciplined, and I'll say this, more self-disciplined person. I lost my self-discipline for many years because other things had happened and my self-respect went with it and so many things. And I've learned the hard way that actually by getting a routine back and, and not setting it in stone, being able to tweak it, keep that uh, authority and control over your life. As we said at the very beginning, Jen, it's so good. We cannot and never will be able to change what is outside of us. We can affect a change. We can hopefully invest in things and help things, but we can't really change change what goes on outside of us to a greater or lesser degree. However, you can change always how you view it from the inside. That's your landscape. That's what you can do. So in that, you can change the way you look at things. You can change the way you're reacting to. It's very Buddhist as well. You know, observe it rather than be it. Uh, Observe and think, is that the best way to react? Is that really the outcome I want? Because that's only stressing me further. So change it. And, and coach yourself through, uh, be your best friend to yourself. I know internal dialogues are very much how I work with my clients. And some of the dialogues I hear people have inside of their worlds are shocking. They wouldn't treat anyone that way, but they treat themselves because we get good at what we practice. So start practicing something new. So routine, start practicing something new. If you know your internal world where you live 24 seven, by the way, isn't the best, start to change it, become a better friend to yourself, but do incur some self because I know with that people go oh, I'll be really relaxed I'll, I'll let myself have that chocolate do but some internal discipline will engender better self-respect as well mm. <laughs> I noticed you went very quiet then um, mm, okay yeah moving swiftly onwards <laughs> <laughs> but I like having that extra I bit know, of right exactly <laughs> okay Chet especially in the winter <laughs> Especially in the winter when it's just I'm cold and miserable you. outside. And it's like, what can I do? I'm oh, with just you on that. I am. I know. <laughs> I'm going to get some pizza tonight for dinner. I know. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Diet will always start tomorrow. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. But also, if uh, people can get help from Jet as well, though, can't they? Oh, they can. Um, obviously, my website's uh, recently been updated, and um, all contact info is on there. I do, I do artwork as well. I've always been able to draw what I see, so I do fluffy dogs and fluffy cats. I've got uh, commissioned portraits. Uh, you'll find that on the gallery of lots of the wonderful things and walks that I do. Uh, but if you want to work with me in terms of coaching, and I do postural assessments and then build a called program design for fitness particularly for spinal health and fitness I can do again do that online and also the coaching and the psychotherapeutic work is all online and you can contact me via my website or if you want to drop me an email um info at dianeudale.co.uk and authentic need only apply um we'll see see what you want see what I've got and see if there's a fit Awesome. I'm sure you'll get a whole barrage of emails now coming <laughs> <Not> through. <laughs> Maybe not. It goes eerily quiet sometimes and I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the new year. Yeah, it's that time when people want to make a change and start uh, sorting themselves out. Too, right. And I am admit that that is my forte. I've always been good at that. I can see very clearly other people's stuff and journeys. I use that word. Um, and, and people <laughs> sometimes can't sit with me and they fold their hands slowly and go, you knew this was going to happen six months ago. Why didn't you tell me then? I'm going, ah, because even though I can very clearly see at times, I'm not got the gift of prophecy, but there's something in there where I get a deep instinct about how that person could be. I call myself a potentialist. Um, even if that person has lost all sight of their light and potential because they're in a very dark space, 
I can see it. I can smell it. It's like a smell without an odor. And I get very excited because I can see it. And then the journey is that word again, uh, for them to do that's the steps for themselves because that's how they acquire it again. It's that hard work and it's that hard work in the learning, which isn't easy, but it's that learning bit, which then allows them to hopefully, <laughs> unlike what I once did, uh, never repeat again, because that's what life's about. You, you're learning from the experiences that shape you more than anything. Yeah. Last question. You mentioned you host the Gladiators podcast, which started last That's year, right. and it's become a real fan favourite. And almost 30 on years, 30 years on now, I should say. Does it surprise you there's still so much affection for the show, especially when you meet fans at, at conventions who sometimes travel hours to get to you? Oh, I'm I'm not surprised and I don't take it for granted. I'm so grateful for it. It's probably not quite the answer that you're, oh, yeah, I'm surprised. Oh, is it? No, I, because it was... It was a very honest show, an authentic show. Everybody loves that. And it was it was full of so much glamour and pace and honesty. The, the contender, you know, literally running and fighting their hearts out for that, that prize of being the, the winning contender. They were so inspirational. And we were kind of like the barriers in the way of their success. We were just obstacles of their of their gladiatorial course. And proud to say that we were gladiators. Not many people could say, oh, when I gladiated. Just like, you know, when when I was a this or when I, when I was a gladiator. I mean, who says that ever across the planet? There's a handful of us. And I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud just to how much... The, the UK nation took to heart during those years, this fabulous show, which mm. which everybody contributed towards and made it just what it was from cast, from crew, and especially the contenders for me, definitely. Yeah, I'm very, very happy. So I still thank people to this day. Diane, it's been so lovely talking to you today and so interesting as well. I hope you have a very happy and healthy 2021. Likewise to you, Jen, and to everybody. Bye. so much again to Diane for taking the time to speak with me. It was so interesting and I hope the advice she gave may have helped you a little bit if you've been struggling during lockdown. And do check out her website, dianeudale.co.uk. As ever, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit celebritycatchup.com to find out how you can donate and how to get in touch if you'd like to say hello. And why not share it with a friend or on social media so that others can have a walk down memory lane too. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>